Uh, good afternoon and welcome to this special edition of Daily Energy Markets podcast. Once a month, we get these two great gentlemen to join us, reflect on the month past and the month ahead. Uh, and in this instance, it might be reflect on the week past and the week ahead. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, we are meeting uh, on Friday, uh, December the 8th, with Brent crude oil trading a little bit above $75 a barrel, a little bit of a bounce back this morning in Asian trade after what has been a series of sell-offs in recent days all through this week and Friday. Even with the bounce back today, we'll see oil trade down, uh, close the week, probably down for the sixth or seventh week in a row. Things are not moving in the direction, certainly where OPEC Plus would want them to be after their big meeting last week. Let's kick off with Mike Muller, uh, head of Vitol in Asia, to give us his thoughts and reflections uh, now a week or so after OPEC, final, OPEC Plus uh, finally got to a decision. And then also maybe in, in, uh, in your thoughts, Mike, the interview that uh, the Saudi energy minister gave on Monday after the decision, your thoughts on all of those events and what direction the market's moving as a result. I think you're on mute. Mike is on mute. Yes. Is Hi. Uh, thanks for that, Sean. Yes, I don't think too many of us would have predicted many weeks back that the market would cycle as low as $74 Brent. And now we've bounced, as you said, in Asian morning trading to nearly $76. Um, and it all comes down to one thing, which is concerns over demand. Um, I think it's relatively clear to see um, what we can expect in terms of production on the supply side, including OPEC+. Plus. Um, so we have the 9 million barrel a day Saudi number set in everyone's supply and demand balances. But on the demand side, I mean, just today, there was a Moody's downgrade on China credit outlook to negative. And that just adds further concern to an already um, concerned picture around demand growth. And there is a view that um, the OPEC plus uh, uh, resolve to take barrels off the market is just about doing enough to meet this revised downwards uh, demand forecast. And if there's any further bearish news in terms of demand indicators and, and now casting from economies like China, um, then we could indeed still see inventories uh, built um, in the in the winter months. And uh, that, of course, weighs heavily on people. Then the next thing to look at, of course, is open interest of spec traders. Um, is this a market which is still risk off? Are people, um, are people uh, about to be uh, re-entering the market to place bets on going long oil? Right now, open interest is uh, across all major energy commodities is at, at a low. Um, in relative terms, gas is looking a lot healthier than oil um, because of various concerns about uh, weather outlook and cold snaps here and there. But the picture on oil, uh, there seems to be a risk off consensus. I think, Christoph, uh, being in China out there, I think you're probably better placed on the pulse of... Well, let's go to Christoph Rule, uh, Christoph Rule, Senior Fellow at the Center for Global Energy Policy at the Columbia University, uh, currently in China. Speaking of the demand uh, outlook and China's outlook, Christoph, you're weak, uh, a week in the country. What does it feel from the ground? Are the headlines over-egging the pudding here or is China facing a difficult window? So let, let me plug in a remark for you to come back yep. later, which is yep. that, of course, to keep this interesting, I, I don't agree with Mike, it's only demand. It's also yes. about supply. It's also about the oil market having a life on its own, not just the macroeconomy. So we can come sure. back later. But to, to yep. in China, as you know, I was sort of very skeptical on Chinese growth for a long time on, on, on the positive growth 
expectations of many analysts. And I have to say, having spent now the week here, I become more gloomy, I become more skeptical. So the, the atmosphere is not good. You know, from the outside, I at least thought, okay, so don't don't go at eight percent anymore. They go at five percent. You know, but what's the big deal? That's still a lot, especially when you're European. Uh, from here, you know, it is like the perception is as if the economy stagnates. Consumption savings rate have increased by 15%. You know, that's a lot. People don't spend money. People just came out of this lockdown, not only not with a big bounce, as many analysts had predicted, but they come out of the lockdown sort of gingerly. It's like the prison door is open, but the prisoner doesn't believe it and doesn't really want to get out. So it is still sort of slow. And it still lacks the kind of enthusiasm, which, you know, the exuberance, which you always had when you came to China and uh, and confirms that it may take a long time and some more government help to get consumption up to speed. And in the meantime, you know, traffic is still thinner. Uh, demand numbers, I think, will come in much lower than uh, many are hopeful or analysts uh, has predicted. And uh, it's the only game in town in terms of growing economy. For oil demand, we only have China, India, and the Middle East itself. So if that doesn't uh, change, and if the economy here turns out closer to four than to five, and it starts to look like that, and if the sort of consumer pessimism, which has to do a lot with the, with the property markets, of course, but also the fact that the government has made it pretty clear they will not prop up real estate again and create another bottle. They will sort of hope that it does. they will prevent it from falling uh, into a bottomless pit, but then they will devote resources to reorganizing their economies into light manufacturing, into EV manufacturing, into new technology manufacturing, which are precisely the areas where they are very efficient and have overcapacity and need to export. And if they are allowed to export, they will wipe out the European and the Japanese attempts at replicating cheap EVs. But that is, of course, precisely the reason why first the US and who knows in the future, Japan and Europe are starting to erect trade barriers because their car industry is, is a bit of a holy cow and is very labor intensive, very important. And I think now, in the headquarters of BMW or Toyota or Volkswagen, people are scratching their heads and are realizing that in pure electric vehicles, they cannot compete with China. And that doesn't bode well for China's chances to export. And if China... Tesla is really the only one who can. Tesla is the only one who really can because they've had that first mover advantage. Then they produce here. And, and according to the Chinese experts, they say that even Tesla cannot compete on cost. And, and, uh, and that, th then you have this excellent manufacturing capacity and too much capacity but if you can't export you can't use it and that bodes you know that's why this political conflict will hurt economically and all of that doesn't doesn't bode very well for for the prospects of the Chinese economy at the moment Mike let's just pick up on that point uh Christoph made uh, at the outset of his commentary and obviously he's talking for China but the supply the the this big story of the last month the OPEC plus uh, meeting or the, the the discussions they had, they were protracted. They were struggling to get to a decision, uh, uh, and they finally got to one. Uh, and a lot of the talk in the in the lead up to the, the announcement, obviously the virtual meeting that was going on, the jawboning behind the scenes, was all about the African countries not being very happy with the re. Uh, this realignment of the quotas, when in reality, listening to the Saudi energy minister on Monday, it seemed to be all about Russia and the credibility of this supply agreement 
being under question. And that's what the downward draft is. If you took all of the cuts that OPEC are current, OPEC plus are currently sitting on, surely if you believed it, with all those cuts, the price should be higher. What do you think of that supply question and the credibility of the OPEC plus group at this point? Yes, there's so much speculation on this. So I think we need to look at the hard facts one by one. First, yeah, yeah. On the Africa side, I think it's fair to say that they haven't been able to produce anywhere close to their previous quotas, and therefore it was realistic and pragmatic to bring those quotas down. It just so happens now that Nigeria and Angola have been producing a bit more than some had expected because forecasts, demand forecasters had gotten ahead of themselves, and now there's been a little bit of surprise to the upside on the production front. Um, and that's, that has uh, caught a few people out. But these are, in the scheme of things, relatively small numbers. Then you have uh, fellow core OPEC and GCC countries. I mean, if you look at Oman, for example, um, they're always amongst the first to, to walk the talk, if you like. And uh, almost instantly, they uh, announced through operational channels that the uh, tolerances would be exercised on all cargoes loading in January. And therefore, their cut would effectively be introduced. And uh, we now expect the same to be the case for various other countries. We have to remember the impact of this because Omani crude and Emirati crude is priced off M minus two. So January cargoes have already fully priced. Yes. And um, because the market is now lower than it was in, <laughs> in the month of November, it adds an interesting little dimension to things because um, these producers are giving you less oil at a price that is out of the money anyway. So that kind of fits. And therefore, I think those cuts will be generally accepted. In some instances, they don't manifest themselves as 5% cuts. They manifest themselves as cargoes being deferred. So a, a couple of cargoes at the end of January will slip into February. And in general, the refining system can make do with that as well. On Russia, I'm sorry, I don't have a view. Perhaps Christoph does. But um, uh, I've, I've seen the talk as you do, and I can't really, uh, I can't really re interpret or, or read much into it. Um, mm. But I think the challenge for OPEC Plus is clear. But the, the, uh, the minister, the, the minister, just to jump in there, Mike. The minute, I mean, we, we all are, are are somewhat removed from the the granular end of things. But uh, the minister of Saudi Arabia, essentially the, the de facto leader of the OPEC Plus group, did go to great lengths to explain in very granular detail of how they would hold Russia to account for the commitment that they've made. Just yes. that sort of granular detail would indicate that there's obviously some question that the ability to to hold Russia to account or that Russia has not been meeting their obligation. Mm -hmm. uh, at least that would be my reading. Yeah, I mean, as I said, Chris, I, yes. Yeah. So I think... Uh... To answer that Russia question, that might be the case, but it's also, I mean, we have to get get real about this. The the, the world has changed. You know, in the oil market, we say always oh, it's a long-term game, and sometimes it shows up in very short intervals. And this is one of these occasions. You just draw a line with the market share of OPEC Plus and the market share of the US. And you see, that's what I meant by supply side changes. You see how production growth relentlessly continues in the US and translates since the beginning of this series of cuts into a gain in market share. And the market share of OPEC plus goes down. And uh, those countries who cut uh, Russia and Saudi Arabia are the ones who are paying the price for it. You know? And uh, we should not kid ourselves. If there's an organization called OPEC, which base, is based on unanimous decisions, Right? That's their rule. And then they have some members who say, oh, we have a voluntary cut. That's the only thing that tells me as a neutral observer is that they have an internal argument. <laughs> Otherwise, why do I need voluntary cuts when I have a decision rule which is voluntary, but for all? You know? And uh, 
I think so. Their credibility has suffered greatly, number one, against this background of changes in market shares and of, of relentless production increases in the US, which again, underestimated by uh, energy analysts who just always do the rig count. They haven't realized how much well and rig productivity has gone up in the US. They're at level, record levels. Add to that Guyana, add to that Brazil coming on. So non-OPEC is pretty strong performing at the moment. And OPEC doesn't look, number one, doesn't look very critical. And number two, Russia no, has bigger fish to fry at the moment. They are not exactly in a financial bind. They have a war at their hands. They are trying to sort of play everybody against everybody else because they are in a, in a corner. Uh, they would have to be shown that there is a mechanism by which these cuts translates into a revenue gain, meaning whatever you gain on the price side and you lose on the volume side needs to add up to a positive fall for Russia. Otherwise, they will always try to find some way out. And I think the minister was probably addressing was this export embargo for products, which didn't last very long, which had many observers scratching their heads. Why do they do this? They have enough, maybe not gasoline, but diesel. Um, and uh, was probably a hope for other members of OPEC Plus that it would translate into a more durable output cut. And without that, Russian uh, Russian promises have not been fulfilled entirely. In fact, you know, since the Ukraine war started, the total export of Russia has increased. And uh, in, again, in market share terms, it was very clear picture. So they gained a little. And um, so I think it is really a matter where you either risk continuing sort of going alone down, alone down this very difficult road and end up with uh, carrying the burden for everybody else up to the point where the losses in volume are no longer compensated by price increases, which are not very forthcoming. And make no mistake, it re seems to require a lot stronger cuts given the demand uh, picture. Because well, you know, every time they cut it, it, it goes ticks up for a day and then it falls again because well, credibility clearly. has been lost. So, so that needs to be addressed in a more comprehensive way. Or, and that's an important thought for the future, or at some point they have one other option open, right? Which is to say, okay, sort it, we're gonna swamp the market, we're going to show you if you don't want to play with us, what it looks like if you have really opened the floodgates and you really have low prices. That would be a threat. Uh, which you can do only once, but uh, then you have to do it. But if you do, well, it, that's you what happened. Uh, that's what happened three and a half years ago when the when in March 2020, April 2020, when when Precisely. clearly Russia and Saudi couldn't find alignment. Mike, look and now with the interview with that and saw that mind in, in the back of your head, and it becomes interesting. Well, with Putin visiting here yesterday on Wednesday as well, it, it sort of puts at least all of the, the the tea leaves lined up together indicates a relationship that needed rehabilitating a little bit. Mike, the market in looking forward, obviously, it is all about the new year. We're going into the sort of down the off season or distracted holiday season. Uh, the market is in contango for the first time in a while, looking out six months. What is that? impact are going to have on the market? Is that to be short-lived, in your opinion? What's contango mean for this market? It's it's not unusual, given the set of supply demand circumstances that have taken the market down into, into the mid-70s. Um, absolutely. Uh, uh, I think the contango is not one of those contangos where you end up uh, storing oil for the following month. We're not at that sort of level yet. And let's not forget the high cost of capital, working capital. People have to factor that into their thinking also. Um, but yes, it is much more uh, expensive now than it was when the last time we had Contango. You, you got to pay six percent for your money, right, or, or whatever your cost of borrowing is. So mm. that, that that means you need much much deeper Contango before you can start talking about a carry and you know carrying January oil into February and so forth. I, I think there's a risk in this market that people are getting into a little bit of a bear frenzy. 
Um, I mean, uh, the the March 2020 standoff, which was rapidly followed by the realization that COVID had to be addressed, and OPEC Plus did something unprecedented, um, and and the cohesion uh, of OPEC Plus since March April 2020, which has been really resilient and formidable. Um, of course, people are looking for a scenario where they're saying there might be a, a collapse in in in, uh, in in the alignment of objectives. Um, I don't think we have a set of circumstances here which we should read that much into. Um, I think I think there's a great danger that people say, "Oh my gosh, you know, um, there's about to be a, a March 2020 uh, situation repeated all over again." And uh, I think various ministers that are involved in OPEC plus delegations are astute enough to to know um, that cohesion is now paramount. And what happens behind the scenes, we may never know. But I think we should look forward to statements of mutual support and cohesion because uh, it's none of their interest to have the outcome that Christophe um, hinted at before. So well, certainly I, we're getting those commentaries and we've got them in you know recent days on the back and around the the the, the Russian president's visit to Saudi and the UAE, uh, the the head of the energy deputy prime minister Novak, and 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 obviously other key stakeholders talking up the 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 need for responsibility and participation by everybody and so forth. Uh, while you say the credibility of OPEC Plus has been solid and and and, and their their consolidate their solidarity barely tight over the recent years this is absolutely true to, obviously that's what kept this market in a very stable and and, and tight space but it, the outlook for that it would appear uh, for saudi does have its limits you know it saudi has uh, is, is in recession uh two consecutive quarters of of, of negative growth uh they're, they're postponing 2030 vision projects uh so this is no longer a gift that can keep on giving would be my sense christoph your thoughts on that saudi's ability to keep giving on this or is this the last straw you think or the last gift from saudi christoph in that particular question i'm no better judge than you yeah. or mike or anybody else on this floor yeah. but what we do know is that uh you know, times are changing. So in 2020, when OPEC Plus was new, COVID was a global crisis, the G20 with the IEA, it's unthinkable today, basically commended uh, OPEC Plus to part. Right? There was a short debate when the oil price goes to almost zero or beyond, should we leave it to the market and the adjustment which has to happen on the supply side or should we do some government quota games? And it was decided with Trump going to Riyadh, uh, meeting everyone, so decided that OPEC Plus basically got, uh, if not a green light in official terms, and the, the verbal support for taking the lead on adjusting the oil price, the oil market, finally stabilizing the oil market, what they always said. That happened. But now, we have years later, we have two wars, you know, at our hands. We have, and in war and love, everything is allowed as far as Russia is concerned, I think. And we do have now a long history of, words and chasing speculators and doing this and this, you know, which is not good because it just leaves those gleeful who said, oh, see, I told you so. It's just nothing nothing behind that. And uh, and Mike is right. We shouldn't overdo it. You know, this is not a beer market. But I want to throw up one more thought about the current market. We tend to still think that we are talking about high oil prices. If you do now that inflation is back, and if you do the inflation adjustment of the oil price, and you adjust for efficiency gains in the way we use oil, which is like 2% every single year, then current prices are not very high by historical standards, not at all, in fact. Then, you know, by those stand, by those adjustments, 
the highest price ever was in 79, would today translate into, four, into more than 400, uh, roughly $400. That caused a recession. But remember the very high price period from 2011 to 2014, when prices were stable three years in a row and did not cause a recession, that in today's term would be about $200. Right. So an, a price, you know, going to 100 or 120 or so would probably not kill the global economy in terms of growth. So the inflation impact is what we all looked at. And that's we lost sight of this a little bit. So in a sense, the market has already turned down without this showing up in the normal numbers we're always looking at. So in that, that sense in particular, I understand that the Saudis are getting nervous and uh, and 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 every basically every bank oil producer and exporter is already feeling the pinch. So we should not, you know, expect them to be willing to just uh, take another plunge. And that's why it becomes for me more and more a binary things: either co cohesion increases uh, and meaningful stabilization of a falling market is achieved, or at some point we might have a repeat of the threat, you know, to enforce cohesion by saying, okay, if you don't do it, then you don't play ball either on the part of Saudi Arabia. Well, on, on that point, Mike, Mike, even if we get, an, uh, you know, and it does, the soundings are that the OPEC plus, or at least those members within it, I think it's eight members that are, are really consolidating their positions in, in, in these cuts going into the new year. And, and the Saudi minister feels very confident that they will all deliver as promised and, and, and have done so in the past and take him at his view and he, he tends to not be wrong too often uh but mike looking at the things outside their control that we saw this year that christoph has referenced on the supply side u.s production up 800 plus thousand barrels a day iran exports uh, up to a million plus barrels a day uh guyana and others adding some barrels here and there uh, going into a new year can we see that trend continue or is that a plateau in your opinion the non-opec plus countries supply continuing to increase as they did in 2023 i think you've touched on an important observation that sets the tone here we we have spent the last decade having supply out from one of one of several or one or more of several uh countries that have either been sanctioned or troubled and um let's add venezuela to the list of yours as well after general license 44 um, the market is busily trying to place Venezuelan oil, which is incremental to what was coming out before. You've commented on Iran. So, yes, we have this unique situation where we have no disrupted supply from any of these countries that are sometimes challenged with their exports. And then you've got Nigeria rebounding where there had been trouble. Um, there seems to be no issue around Libya. And the only the only um, tranche of oil, I guess, that is yet to be um, released to market by finding an evacuation route is, is Kurdish oil. But... Um, Yes, everything is there in terms of taps being open and in some cases, um, lack of intervention in, in flows of, of sanctioned barrels. So that has fed the picture for sure. Um, again, I can't yeah. emphasize enough and repeat Christoph's point. Um, inflationary pressures mean that in real terms, today's oil price is at the low end of the range and it's getting quite close to the levels at which um, large investors in the upstream do their screening for projects. Um, so those companies don't tend to be companies that hedge and try and sell the forward curve, but the forward curve is, uh, in the low seventies or whatever is, is not far off the screening values against which major projects are screened. And I saw a report recently from one of the large wall street banks suggesting that the marginal cost of shale production in the U S is now mid sixties. So that is quite close to comfort. The price never gets fully there because then people don't 
don't uh, deploy rigs anymore. I'm not saying we're going to see uh, cuts in upstream spend, but we're not far from the levels which discourage sanctioning of new projects, new FIDs. So I think the appetite invest will flow. Yeah. What about yeah, so, Mike? Sorry, go ahead, yourself. No, there's another point in, in, in all of this, which we, I always say, you know, that all markets connect long and short term thinking. And one way in which the world has changed, which kind of comes home now, is what we already mentioned that the US is no longer importing. And so the market shares are now moving very quickly into disfavor of OPEC. Another thing which is likely to happen within this decade, uh, and despite all the OPEC, uh, OPEC research forecasts and so on, is that oil demand is likely to peak. And what we have currently is this slightly strange picture of OPEC countries trying to cut and persuade others to cut, and at the same time, massively expanding their own capacity. Right? Why do they do this? And I think that signals more than anything that they know that the market is about to peak. What will happen when all demand peaks is in a shrinking market, the low-cost producer is king. Right? In order to keep your export volumes constant in a shrinking market, you need to increase your share. How do you increase your share? It's going to be price competition. Competition and this is going to be put, putting very very heavy heavy pressure on local countries and this is why they expand their capacity because they can produce cheaper than Russia and then the rest of the world and so they will at least in the initial rounds of this being the ones left standing increasing their market share again if that wouldn't be on the back of their mind in these day to day battles or so then they would not do a good job and they would not expand capacity like they do so. I'm pretty positive that this is an element which is very little discussed, but which plays a role in the, today's decisions. And peak demand, no, is sorry. A, yeah, sorry, peak demand is a huge debate, of course, because the, the OPEC view as presented at your dinner in Fujairah a couple of months ago is that we're seeing demands heading to 116 million barrels a day. And of no, course, it's not, it's, not, it's not particularly fashionable for any reputable company to go out there saying all demand's going to keep going and we're investing in it. But uh, I think deep down, most people acknowledge that there is growth to come, and investment is required in the upstream. Still what are the big Chinese? One of the big Chinese oil companies said uh, this week that China peak oil demand was uh, twenty thirty. I think they uh, identified it. I was at a talk during the week at uh, during the COP sideline events, and S and P Global Commodity Insights held a, a scenarios outlook where they also called peak oil demand in 2030. So the IEA is no longer the only one that seems to be echoing that. But in more immediate term, Mike, I wanted to get your views on with these price levels. Again, it brings the oil price cap, the the Russian $60 oil price cap back into, into the money, so to speak, of legal engagement, given it's below $60. Does that move the needle on anything, do you think, at this particular time when this more robust uh, sanction-busting police are out and around? <laughs> well, I commented before that, that the policing is perhaps not, not as much as some people would have expected, which has enabled the, the flows from various sanctioned, uh, sanctioned sources. Um, but yes, as we move closer to that $60 level, that may bring more participants in. I think it's been uh, uh, a pretty transparent observation that the discounts for Russian oil have diminished. There's actually been competition created by the various channels to market that Russia has engaged to market their crude to largely China and India, but also some other economies and on products, it's, it's even more prevalent. So I think there'll be further compression in those discounts and uh, we definitely are not below price cap yet. So I don't think there's any change to the constellation of parties that are able to handle Russian oil uh, and comply with the um, with the restrictions that, uh, that need to be observed. 
let's just go to final comment, uh, Christopher, uh, leading with you on uh, we're about to break for the for the festive season for a month uh, before we start our new year with the Global Energy Outlook Forum on January 10th. Uh, but a month over the horizon, what do you think? Where does this go? It's only a few days after the OPEC Plus announcement. The market adopts. Where do you think this this goes for a month of uh, distraction from the festive season? I don't see actually many disruptions. It seems that prices will settle a little lower than many people had expected or some people had hoped. Uh, and if there is no surprises you know, in terms of another outbreak of a war sorry, in Venezuela or, uh, or something in the Ukraine or in, or in Gaza, then uh, oil demand will not uh, will not dramatically shift in a month and the supply will not dramatically shift in a month. But it should be a, a moment for reflection because to me it is still sometimes surprising the, the level of analysis always just looking at country, adding up countries and barrels and day after day is not going to give us good answers for this. And, and uh, allow me sort of one short response on the peak demand questions. Yeah. If you're in the numbers game, and if you just assume that over the next, say, 10 years, the efficiency improvements in the world, in the way the world uses its oil, you know, mileage for cars, the way the heating systems work, all of this continue like they have in the last 25 to 30 years. If you only assume that, then oil demand will peak before 2030, full stop. So that is a realistic uh, option. And and, uh, and this is a second big event, just like uh, the US becoming a net exporter, which would just change the whole, uh, the whole game. And if you have these you know, usually energy markets are at the receiving ends. You have economic events, wars, political events, and then they are affected in energy markets. It's very rare that in this triangle between geopolitics, global economy, global energy, something is triggered by the energy markets. The shale revolution and the energy independence of the US was such an event. And if oil demand peaks and then this doesn't plateau but falls off a little bit, there's going to be another one of these events. Uh, and that's why they have, of course, long shadows before they happen and long repercussions after they have happened. And that's the, the unexplained part, which we always see and which surprises us when we just do barrel counting. Mike, just your closing thoughts on the month ahead. I mean, much mightn't change with terms of the sort of basic demand picture, basic supply picture. But what does change is low low volumes of trading, the the the, the general uh, distraction away from the from the market. And so what impact could that likely have in, in a market with the current profile? I think this risk-off mindset I highlighted uh, tallies with year-end. It's actually school holiday month in Singapore. So I think there's, there's a lot less appetite uh, to, to put on big positions in the market right now. I think we we might get ourselves into a situation where we we get more bearish than we should be. Even on China, I mentioned before the Moody's downgrade. But if you look at what's actually happening, central government propping up provincial governments and uh, creating an internal stimulus should be good for demand. And therefore, I think there's a, there's a danger that we start getting ourselves too bearish China, too bearish on the demand side of things also. And uh, I've said it several times in this call as well already, but I think OPEC Plus... Uh, will find the right balance and will communicate externally, whatever might be happening inter internally in a consistent manner. And I'm looking for those signals over the coming weeks in terms of we've already had the Saudi OSPs at robust levels. Uh, same, same, no change in, in stance there whatsoever. And I expect there to be follow through in terms of cuts being implemented from other OPEC plus members to, um, to hold the line. 
Well, we'll wrap it up there and thank Mike Muller uh, and Christoph Rule for agreeing to sort of tweak this calendar a little bit to get on our airwaves before the big holiday distraction. Uh, they're all very busy traveling the world. Uh, Mike in London, I believe, and Christoph in, in China and both making their time today for us and give us their insights before uh, the disruptive season really kicks off next week. So thank you both very much. Uh, have a great holiday season and hopefully we'll get a chance to ra raise a glass somewhere along the way. Uh, and if not, uh, you know, enjoy and we look forward to catching up in the new year. All the best. Thank you.